would join me in uh, turning to chapter 3, uh, we're going to pick it up there in verse 17. My note, I have 7, but it's actually 17, through uh, chapter 4, verse 1. And it's in a series we've titled, as I go over almost every week with you, called Joy-Filled Living, because as the Apostle Paul is writing this epistle from a Roman prison cell, actually he's in a house prison, so he's actually rented a home, but he's actually shackled to a Roman guard. He's under 24-hour, 365-day-a-week arrest in a home, but people are still able to come to where he's at. And so he's penned this letter back to the church there in Philippi, and he's thanking them for when he was with them, when ultimately he was uh, arrested first, uh, was there in their city, and they came while he was there, uh, a lot like I was talking about, together we can, and they were they were being Jesus to Paul. They were extending God's love to him by caring for him, for by providing for his needs, and what a blessing that was. And so he's writing this letter to thank them, and then to instruct them, uh, and in like I said, it's about 16 times in 104 verses is what makes up this book. Uh, the Apostle Paul speaks of joy. And people read this and, and not knowing the background, not knowing that he's in prison, you know, just ask the question, you know, it's like, how could he be so joy-filled? And it's what draws us to read this book and to study it. What's, what's so unique? What does Paul know, you might ask, that we don't know today? And that's why we, we study this. And so I titled this morning's message, what do you see? Because what you see really determines how you live your life. And so we'll take a look at this. We'll read it together, beginning in verse 17. Then we'll take a moment here and pray, and we'll jump into this. Paul the Apostle speaking here, he says, Brethren, he says, join in following my example, and note those who walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now I tell you even now weeping, that they are enemies of the cross, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he's able to even subdue all things to himself. And unfortunately, you know, for us, <clears throat> the Bible wasn't written with addresses, okay? It was one complete letter, you know, each, each, you know, each book of the Bible. And then, you know, and I thank God that someone came along and put addresses there for us to be able to find things a little bit easier. But in doing so, sometimes uh, there's oversight, and I, I truly believe there's one here, because if you look at uh, chapter 4, I think chapter 4, because of, of this verse, it should have actually not been chapter 4, it should have been verse 22 of chapter 3, and so we'll read verse uh, chapter 4, verse 1 together, and include that in our study today. It says, then therefore, and again, what do you think of when you see that word therefore? Remember, everything that precedes, everything that came before is what you bear in mind. He says, therefore, my beloved and my longed-for brethren, my joy and my crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. And so let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for a place where we can come each week and gather together in your name, where we can sing, and we can sing as loud as we want. We can sing as soft as we want. We can sit, we can stand, we can raise our hands, we can fall on our face. There, there's nobody here telling us uh, that what we can and can't do when it comes to worshiping you with all of our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength. And Lord, we praise you for that. We thank you that, Lord, we can come to a church that loves your word and believes your word and teaches it all over this campus, whether it be in our children's ministry or written on the walls of our nursery, Lord. It's in our youth, uh, Lord, and our young adults our men's and our women's, no, no matter where we meet, Lord, we, we love your word. Lord, we love to study it together. We love to apply it together. Uh, Lord, we love to dig deep into it and see how it applies to our lives this very day. And, and that's why we come. And so, Lord, we ask you in these moments, Lord, as we read your word, that God, you being the God of revelation, Lord, would open up our minds that you would open up our eyes, that you would open up our ears, that, Lord, we receive all that you have for us today. And that, Lord, what we receive, Lord, we could ultimately give back to you in the way of lives that are 
that are worshiping you, that are loving you. Again, as your word declares, we don't want to just be hearers of the word. Lord, we want to be doers of your word. And so, Lord, help us to apply it today. And Lord, as we open this service and we pray, Lord, we do want to lift up Leanna to you today. And we thank you for her life. And we thank you, Lord, for what she means to this church. And not just for her service and just her faithfulness, but Lord, just for who she is. When, Lord, she comes into a room and, Lord, the smile upon her face, the, the words upon her lips to encourage, Lord, to edify and to build up, Lord, our church family. We thank you for all that she does. And may you continue to bless her life and, Lord, provide for her every need. And may today, especially, that she would know just how much she's loved. And we thank you for her and pray your blessings over her this day. And for the Jones family, Lord, we thank you for them. We thank you for their ministry. Lord, in this church and many churches in our community, the lives that are touched and being transformed. Lord, thank you for John's father who loved you. What he knows in reality, we know by faith today. God, to know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. May that comfort, as Paul would write to the church in Thessalonica, that we comfort one another with these words, that he's with you today. And Lord, there'll be a day that we get to see him again face to face. And so, Lord, thank you for those truths. Thank you for those realities in our life. And may it provide the peace and the comfort that the family would need in moments like this. And, and so, Lord, as we go uh, into your word, Lord, I pray that we would do with excitement and anticipation. Because, Lord, there's something for each of us there that you have today. May we find it. And, uh, Lord, may we know it. And may it bring us to a place where we love you and know you and serve you. Lord, we ask these things in the wonderful name of Jesus as we pray. Amen. You know, it's interesting. You look at this. I shared with you last week that chapter 3 is kind of like an autobiography, you know, Paul's life. It covers his past. You look at verses, you know, 1 through 11 there, and it goes back into his you know, pedigree, his heritage, and then, you know, verses 12 through 16, it gets into his present situation and the things that he's going through. And then, you know, today we're looking at what he's looking into the future. And that's why I titled this, you know, what do you see? Because how you see life, like I said, will determine how you live. If you, if you see life as, you know, that it's empty and, and, you know, we talk about hope and the power of hope. And when you don't have hope, you know, in this world, uh, you know, we see the suicide rate, uh, it, continues to climb in this country. You know, the apostle Paul said, he said, you know, eat, drink, and be merry, you know, for tomorrow you surely die if you don't have God, if there is no God, if, if Jesus hasn't resurrected from the dead, if he hasn't done what he promises to do. But we're here today as a church family who, who believes and recognizes that he is who he claimed to be, that he's done the things that he said that he would do. And as we look at these, you know, today, uh, we look at Paul's life, you know, he didn't live, you know, if you look over the, the things that happened to him, much like Joseph in the Old Testament, you know, he didn't live with what we would call today, it's uh, in the news, a, a victim's mentality. Uh, he didn't live focused on the things that he was just going through in this particular moment in his life. You know, so many people psychoanalyze, you know, their, their present condition or situation and, and it's so difficult to do that because most of the time, and we do it with a biblical premise, in one sense, you know, the Bible says, for whatever a man sows, what? That too he shall reap. So oftentimes what happens is we'll look at our current situation and we'll go, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going through whatever I'm going through right now because of what I did in the past, right? And that's just kind of a common sense way. That's an earthly way, you know, to say, you know, how we would look at our current situation. But the Apostle Paul now, you talk about somebody who's experiencing joy to the fullest and whose life really epitomizes that, is you go, he's not bound by his past. That's what we talked about last week. What did he say? He said, I forget the things, right, which are behind, and I press on. So what we find, and it's what all of us need to do, you know, when we get to those moments in life, because that's what you start to do, you look from your current situation, if you're honest, you go backwards, right? And you go, oh, the reason it is today is because of this and this and this and this. But what if you were going through everything that you were going through today because God was preparing you for something better? That would be different, right? Well, that's the Apostle Paul. And that's God's hope and his prayer for me and for you. That we wouldn't be in the sense, if you want to make it very simple, as be victims of our past. 
but no, rather that we'd become what? Victims of our future. And that's what it is to be a believer. That is what it is to be a follower of Christ here. You know, it was C.S. Lewis who said this. He said, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for this present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. You see, what is that telling us? Forward thinking, right? He says, it is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this world. You know, and so we need to think about that today because the Apostle Paul was thinking about that. And he was, he's reminding us, you know, in his word is that we need to be forward thinking about eternal things. We need to look forward to those things that God has ahead for us. You know, the philosophy of life, you know, what, like I said, what governed the Apostle Paul's life, because he didn't have a, a problem with his past, you know, he just wasn't bound by it. And I, I wonder that today. Are you bound by your past? And is that the thing that governs your decisions today? You know, Paul recognized that God was using his past, like I said, to shape his current uh, circumstances, but ultimately it was preparing him for his future. And the same thing what God did with Paul, he does with you and I in mind. You know, I love that expression by Dale Carnegie that said, two men looked out from their prison cell. One saw bars, the other stars. And I think that that's how life is, isn't it? Because we go through the same things in life, you know, varying degrees. But some of us here today, you know, we see the constraints. You know, we see it, is the glass half full or is it half empty? I always like the person goes, hey, what does it matter if it's half full or if it's half empty? It's got water in it, right? You know, and you go, hey, there's a fresh perspective there. But, you know, do you see it from a negative perspective? Do you see it from a positive perspective? Or do you see it from an eternal perspective? And that's what Paul is drawing us to today, that we would begin to look up, you know, that we would see things the way that God sees them. You know, and again, what, what do we say in that? Perspective. Perspective changes everything. Corey Tim Boom. Most of you have heard about her, you've read about her. She was a survivor of the Holocaust. I mean, you think about all the things that she suffered through, you know, the death that took place all around her, and how could she come out of that, you know, and not unscathed, but to take those things in life and to use them for God's glory. She had to see an eternal plan. And she would say, you know, in her own words, she says, I don't know what the future holds, but what? But I know who holds the future. And that would pull her forward. That's what would take her, you know, into her tomorrows. You know, I love another expression that she would always say. She said, you know, when I look around, she said, you know, I get confused. She goes, you know, when I look down, she goes, I get depressed. She goes, but when I look up, she said, my heart's at rest. And that's what the apostle Paul is wanting to communicate to us today through his life, through the expressions of, of his, you know, words that God would use to pin this book to uh, those in Philippi there. You know, that again, you can look to the past, but it really serves you no good in the truest sense of what God has for you in the future. You can learn from it. And again, you can grow from it. But when we start to see that God sees everything, and remember, I shared this with you, there was a book by Stephen Covey called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And it has some really good, you know, principles in it. But one of them was that, that effective people start with the end in mind. And I think God's highly effective, wouldn't you agree? And that's exactly what he starts with. You know, he didn't just take a, you know, like Gumby, you know, little slab of clay. And all of a sudden, you know, he fashioned you. He, the word of God says that he knew you while you were yet in your mother's womb. He fashioned you there. He knows everything about you. Jesus said himself, he said that he knows not just the number of your days. You know, you can worry about, you know, uh, when am I going to die? What's going to, you, know, you can worry about that and, you know, uh, it'll mess up your life or you realize that my life is safe and it's in his hands and that he's, he's counted even the number of the hairs upon my head. And that's an ever-changing thing. I saw my wife the other day, she got this little basket thing that goes in the, in our drain, you know, that it, catches hair so it doesn't go down, you know, the thing. And I go, man, there's, you know, we have to vacuum our house, you know, sometimes twice a day. We have a Labrador retriever who, anybody have dogs that are shedding this time of year? And you go, man, you look there and you go, there's another animal laying on our floor in our house. It's like, where did that come from? How does that much hair come off of a dog? And, and yet you go, 
And to think that God, God knows those numbers, things that we don't even think of or even care about, right? But God does, and he cares about you. He started with the end in mind, and everything that's happened in your life today is following a purpose and a plan. Do we always understand it? No. Like Corey Timboom, I go, you know, I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future, amen? And as, that, as we look at that, you know, and I look at this, in, especially in verse... Uh, I want to go back, you know, for a second. Uh, I want you to think about this, that, you know, everything that the Apostle Paul did, he did in light of heaven, okay? You, you got to get that. Every, everything that he was doing, he was doing, he was, his perspective, his look, his focus was on heaven. And you go all the way back, just to kind of bring this up to speed, all the way back to chapter one. Look there, if you would, with me in verse 18. Now, I'm going to read this from the NIV translation because it puts it into perspective for us. And, and Verse 18 in chapter 1, it says, But what does it matter, Paul says? He says, The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, he says, I rejoice. I rejoice. And you think about, you know, what is he telling us here? He's, he says, I rejoice, and it's period. You know, have you ever heard that expression, don't put a comma where God puts a period? You know, or don't put a period where God puts a comma, you know, is actually one way. I'm, I'm saying in this is we need to understand when the word of God was written here, it wasn't written with a comma, it was written with a period. When God says rejoice, it wasn't comma, you know, like, uh, unless your circumstances don't call for it. No, he says rejoice, period. You know, we were talking about this the other day, you know, it's often been said, you know, that the shortest verse in the Bible is Jesus wept, but actually in the Greek language, there's three words there, so it's not Jesus wept. The actual shortest verse in all the Bible is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, where it says, rejoice always. I like that better too, of all the things that we should do. It's not weep, it's rejoice always. But he doesn't put a comma there, he puts a period. So sometimes in the translations, when you look at that, you go, eh, you know, okay, joy then is circumstantial. No, happiness is circumstantial. Joy is not, because our joy is rooted and founded in Jesus. And nobody can take your joy. You can surrender it. You can give it up, but nobody can take that from you. And so, like I said, I think in this, as you look at this, um, I look at verses 18 and 19 in this way. He says, what then only, he says that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And he says, and in this I rejoice, comma, he says, yes, I will rejoice, period. Okay, that, that's the point I was making. Then verse 19, he says, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the spirit of Jesus Christ. And like I said, I, I, I believe the end of, of verse 18 should actually be connected there to verse 19, it should read like this. And in this I rejoice, yes, I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Again, you know, Paul knows where the comma goes. Paul knows where the period goes there. And again, what is he saying? In the ultimate sense, he's going, my past, my past isn't going to define me. And I, and I hope today that your past isn't defining you. I hope what I'm saying is, I hope that you haven't looked at your past in that regard and said, period. You know, again, that goes back to where, where God puts a comma, don't put a period. And again, Paul understood that. So he understands that God's using those things. But when it comes to rejoicing, that's not a comma. That's not going, well, I'll rejoice if it was no, I will rejoice, period. No matter what, no matter what I'm going through, no matter how I feel, I'm going to choose. And it is a choice that you make. Again, you can say that it's not, but it, you know, there's a, like I said, I've shared this with you. There's a great book. It's called Happiness is a Choice, and it really is. It's really not as circumstantial as people want to make it out to be. And so you think about, you know, Paul looking at his past. You go, well, so how can I say, you know, this today? Paul's saying, you know, that his past only did what? It only served for the furtherance of the gospel. That's what he's saying. He's going, my imprisonment, all the hurts, all the sorrows, all the pain that I've gone through, because how's he looking at it? From heavenly, a heavenly perspective, he's going, it's all work to the furtherance of the gospel. You go all the way back to chapter one, I think it's, you know, verse, verse 12, and, and, you, and you see this. 
And you go, what happened? Well, if you understand what happened in Paul's life, there he was in Caesarea Philippi, right? He's arrested. He's taken to Jerusalem. And again, or he's in Jerusalem, excuse me, ends up over in Caesarea Philippi. And he ends up in prison there. And while he's in prison there, you know, he goes on, he has three mistrials, three trials where he's, you know, they can't find enough evidence. You know, they're one before Felix, one before Festus, and then one before Agrippa. And so as a Roman citizen, Paul, again, what does he do? He's, he says, basically, you know what? Um, I render, you know, I, I want an audience before Caesar as a Roman citizen. So they're going, okay, you know, he's right. He's a Roman citizen. So to Caesar, you want to go to Caesar, you're going to go. So what do they do? They put him on a ship. We read in the book of Acts and what happens when he's on that ship. It ends up shipwrecked, right? And you go to all these things. Here he is. He's been in prison. He's been on trial. He's been shipwrecked. He's been beaten. And, and now he's writing from the city of Rome where he's under house arrest. He's there for two years. And it'd be real easy to look at his past and go, you know, I mean, I set out to, to love you, God. I set out to worship you. I set out to serve you. And look at all these things that are happening. But his perspective, he didn't see bars. He saw stars. He saw God's hand in it. He believed what God declared to be true, that all things do work together for good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. And so he says, hey, he goes, all these things, they did. They did happen to me, but they're not going to steal my joy. And he doesn't end there. I mean, you think about, it. he's writing to us in the book of Philippians and he's telling us, it's not just my past, but what? In my present. He goes, what? There was people in the church, right? That were, that were making his life difficult. The Judaizers, right? What were the Judaizers? They were those that came along, you know, that were trying to convince those that uh, had come to Christ, the non-Jewish people, that in order to be saved, yes, they could believe in Jesus, but then they had to be circumcised, and then they had to come under the law of Moses. And so here's Paul going, gosh, it's like, no matter where I go, these people follow me around, and all they do is try to undo my teaching. It's like, can I catch a break? You know, so it's not just my past, it's my present circumstances, because some people would say, well, okay, well, you know, I, I see the past, but I mean, but you just don't know what I'm going through, and people say it all the time, right? You just don't understand what I'm going through right now. I mean, you think Paul could have said that? Absolutely, but he didn't, because why? Because he wasn't looking to the past, he wasn't looking to the present, he was being pulled by the future. Like I said, if he was a victim, it wasn't of his past, it wasn't of his current situation, he was a victim of his future. And that's where his joy came from, because that's a sure thing. And when you start thinking about that, you know, usually happiness is tied to a happening, right? So there's ups and downs. Well, if you move that happiness to, to God, happy is the man who's what? The psalmist declared, whose Lord is God, right? You make God your happiness. You make God your joy. Guess what? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not going to move. He's not shaken. It's a sure thing. So you start seeing, okay, that I need to move. What am I focused on? What do I see? Again, the title for today, what do I see? What's in my perspective? What, what's in my view? How do I see these things? You ever got one of those, those mirrors that you know, magnifies your face like 10 times, like what it normally is? Like, and you look at that, and the first time you do it, 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 you, it could kill you. you know, I mean, you get used to it after a while, but I mean, but the first time you look, you go, whoa, God, that can't be me. You know, and you go, wow. And then you're asking yourself, does other people see that? You know, you go, no, they don't see 10 times, you know, I mean, unless they've got, you know, like binoculars or something. You go, but you go, wow, man. I mean, yeah. No. It only makes you thank God that you're going to get a new body one day, you know. Now you do what? Now you start looking forward. You're looking at, you go, Man, I'm going to get a new body one day. Awesome. You know, this one's, this one's not going to last. But Paul, again, realizing not his past, not even the present, not even the Judaizers that are coming against him. He's going, I'm, they're not going to steal my joy because my joy doesn't come from them. My joy comes from Jesus. He wasn't even worried about his future, right? He says it. He goes, I don't, you know, if I live, I live. If I die, I die. Why? Well, what's he tell us, you know, in the book of Corinthians? He says, because... To die is to do what? To be absent from the bodies, to be what? Present with God. 
So he's going, I win. That's what he says earlier in Philippians, right? He's going, I'm hard-pressed between the two. He, wasn't, he didn't have a defeatist mentality. He wasn't going, I don't want to live any longer. He's going, man, knowing what I know, I've been to the third heaven, right? I've been there. It's like, you know, the Mount of Transfiguration, you know, what changed their life. They saw the end. They saw revelation. They, they got to see the end of the story. Like I said, what would happen today if you and I truly could be taken to the end of the story of your life? If you could be in your bedroom in heaven today, right? And you could see all the things that are there. You go, would it change your perspective on this earth? You go, absolutely it would. And you can know that. You can know it by faith because you go, why? Because his word declares it. You know, it's like Thomas going, you know, I'll believe if I could see it. Oh yeah, God would just take me to heaven today. Show me my bedroom. Show me all the things that I'm going to get to have. And guess what? You know, man, that would change the way I'd live now. And like Thomas, Jesus goes, okay, Thomas, stick your hand on my side. Because Thomas said, I'm not going to believe unless, you know, I can literally stick my hand in the wounds of his side. Go ahead. Jesus appears to him. And did he, did he do it? No. No. He was ashamed in one sense. He's going, no. And Jesus said what? Blessed are those who believe who have not seen. That's what faith is. Faith, faith is the assurance. God has declared in his word. You can bank on everything that he's promised he will do. And when we begin to rest in that, that becomes then our motivation. Paul appealed, like I said, to Caesar. So he knows that he's going to stand in front of Caesar. Caesar Nero himself. And Nero's going to hand down a verdict. And that verdict's either going to be, you're going to, you know, be what? Exonerated? Or you're going to be executed. He's going to be set free or he's going to have his head severed. And we know what happened. He had his head severed, but he was set free in that moment. Not what he thought, but he was set free because what? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so his wish came true. His dream came true. Now, the way that it came about wasn't necessarily the way that he would have thought but that's okay. He trusted himself to God. And that's what we do well to do. And so if you go back to, to verse 17 there in chapter 3, where he says, you know, brethren, he says, join then in my following my example and note those who, who so walk as you have a pattern. You know, you ever heard the expression, do as I say, not as I do? You ever use that expression? You know, that Paul is saying there, he's, he's not saying, do as I say, you know, not as I do. What he's saying is, is do as I do. He's not trying to draw attention to himself. What he's saying is what you and I should be saying. Hopefully this should be how your day goes and my day goes. If people followed me today and they followed you today, should it lead them closer to Jesus? Yeah. By the things that you do and the things that you say, whatever you watch, whatever you eat, all, the, all those things, you go somehow, some way, it should point to Jesus. At the end of the day, our hope would be that if they followed us, they wouldn't be further away from God, right? You know, the Bible says bad company corrupts good morals, that they wouldn't go, you know, or be confused, you know, about God or heaven and what our values are and the things that are important to us. You go, no. And so what Paul is saying is, you know, you have an example to follow. We know where we're going. Why? Thank God he knew, he knew the future, right? You, you ever been somewhere with somebody who didn't know where they were at? And they're acting like they know where they're at. And they're, yeah, I think it's this way. You know, you know my wife and I have wonderful stories of, of traveling around France and, and not knowing where we're going. And, and I didn't blame her. I blamed Google. Because the little dot, I mean, it was so fun to watch. The little dot on her phone would not respond in real time. So we would be walking. We were looking for a restaurant one night. And we're in, we're in Carcassonne, which is a beautiful city. I would encourage everybody, if you ever get a chance to go to France, go to Carcassonne. So we're in Carcassonne, and it's a walled city, okay? You're inside a, like a fort, right? But it's a city inside of this, and it's beautiful. It, it kind of reminds me of uh, the Accardo there in Jerusalem. It's all just stone, and it's just store after store after store after store, and it's beautiful, just the stone streets, everything. And we're walking along. And we're following the blue dot that's telling us where a restaurant is. And we go, and we go. We walk for a mile, 
and we go, and we're right back at the same spot where we started, following the blue dot. And we're both getting upset. It wasn't just me, you know. She's, she's you know, wanting to throw this thing down, you know. But it's like it's getting us lost. And when you get lost, what happens? We didn't know our way around. You get mad and you get frustrated, you know. That, that's why, you know, again, as, as God's word says, let there be few teachers from amongst you who rise up because you incur a stricter judgment. Because if you don't know where you're going, and yet you're telling everybody else how not to get there in the truest sense, you go, you're only going to leave people frustrated. Well, the apostle Paul, like I said, he'd been taken up to the third heaven. He'd spent time with Jesus. He'd been 15 years on the backside of a desert. He was taught by the Lord. And you think about, you know, in his life and then the experiences that he has, he is so certain about what he's doing. So he's saying, you know, hey, follow me. Not because I'm somebody, I know somebody. Because that was the goal of his life, right? The, we talked about this, you know, the, I love that song I played for you, you know, from Matthew Ward. Knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. You're my all, you're the best, you're my joy, my righteousness, and I love you, Lord. Paul could have sang that all day long because that's what he did with his life. And so when you meet somebody who's going, hey, you know what, just follow me because I'm going to lead you to Jesus because what I'm doing in my life is trying to seek him, is trying to get closer to him, is trying to glorify him. That, that's what Paul's saying. He's not pompous here. He's not going, yeah, you know, follow me, 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 me. It's not about Paul at all. He said, I've been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, he says, I live for the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So I think it, I think it makes sense to you there. His, his motto, like I said, could be found in, in chapter 1 or verse 21. He says, for me to live as Christ and what? To die as gain. Yeah. It was all about Jesus. You want to have joy in your life? Make it all about Jesus. Make it all about Jesus. You know, it kind of reminds me, I shared this with you, I think like in one of the first couple of weeks, that story uh, about the grandparents who picked up their grandson and uh, got to have him for, you know, a week and, and they go to church. So they took their grandson to church. And so after his Sunday school class, they were driving in the car home and uh, the grandpa asked his grandson, he said, uh, well, honey, he said, uh, you know, did you like church today? And he goes, yeah, grandpa. I, I liked it. And he goes, did you meet like, not like lots of new kids? And he, yeah, yeah. And uh, he said, so, you know, what, tell me, what did you learn? He said, well, I learned that uh, the teacher is, is Jesus' grandma. And he goes, what? He goes, you, what? And he goes, the, teach, the teacher is Jesus' grandma. And he goes, honey, why do you say that? Why is the teacher Jesus' grandma? And she says, well, you know, he goes, all she did was talk about Jesus. Jesus this, Jesus that, just like grandma. You know, Jesus this, Jesus that. So she must be Jesus' grandma. And you go, and I love that because it gives you this perspective of whatever you are, you know, in love with, you talk about all the time. You, you get a, if you're, how many, we have any grandparents that are in here today? Yeah. I, I, I tell my kids kiddingly, okay? I didn't really tell them that. Well, I did tell them, but it was a joke. I said, you know, if I'd have known being a grandparent was this good, I'd have skipped being a parent. I'd have just jumped right to being a grandparent, you know, and, and they get it. But they, I have grandkids because I have kids and I love my kids, but man, grandkids. And then my mother-in-law reminds, she goes, hey, then just think about this. When you have great, great grandkids, and I go, wow, that'll be, be awesome. I hope I live that long. But do you think about Paul? is so caught up in Jesus. He loves him so much. That, that's what's on his lips all the time, pointing people to Jesus. Follow me. We'll talk about him. Everything that we do from our rising up, you know, Deuteronomy chapter six, all over again, from our rising up to our lying down, that our, our focus, what we see, what we're looking for is Jesus. Look there in verses 18 and 19. He says, for, you know, for many walk, he says, of whom I've told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly and whose glory is their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. You know, Paul, like I said, in verse 17 says who to follow there in verse 18 and 19, he says who not to follow. Okay. So he's lap, lapping this out for us so we can, we can see it. And why is he crying? Why is, why is the apostle Paul, wait, he has joy, but he's crying here in this, in this moment. That's a great question. You know, so you go back, remember who, who are Paul's eyes on? 
What do I say? They're on Jesus, right? So let me ask you, do you see Jesus weeping in Scripture? There's two places that we see Jesus weeping in Scripture. One is in Luke chapter 19. And it says this. Remember when Jesus came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday? This great joyful celebration was marked by one of the times that Jesus wept. And it says, and now as he drew near to the city, he wept over it, saying, if you had known, he's talking about Jerusalem, the city there. He says, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close in on every side. Did that day come? A.D. 70. Rome came in, and they sacked the city. Didn't leave a stone unturned. It says, and they'll level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. What was his tears from? The future, not the past. Remember, he's future-oriented, future-oriented. He's crying about the future. The other place that we see it in John chapter 11 probably more familiar to most people, is the tomb of Lazarus, right? Well, Jesus knows that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, right? That's why he came. He knew everything that was going on, but he's weeping. And he's weeping, you go, why? Because he's thinking about what death is. It's not just that he has compassion. He has compassion for them. But it's not compassion in the moment so much as it is the understanding of what death is about. Death is an annihilation, that when you die, it, your body just, you know, you cease to exist. No, death is, you're either in the presence of God, or you're going to be in hell for all eternity. There's no middle ground. And for him to know, many that were falling, obviously, were going to spend eternity in hell. It was the future that caused the tears, not the past. Is what he knew what was coming. John chapter 11, verse 35 through 39, it says, And Jesus wept. It says, Then the Jews said, See how he loved him, and how some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? And then Jesus, again, it says, Groaning in himself, came to the place, the tomb, and it was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Heaven and hell are real places. See, Paul doesn't name men here. I mean, he could have. But naming the men would have made it specific in that regard going backwards. And there are places where he names names. But here, it's more of a general statement. Yeah, he's probably speaking, like I said, of the Judaizers who were following him around. Who were just making havoc, you know, of his ministry there. Or maybe it's the false believers that he's talking about in the church that they're not there to serve Jesus. It could be if they, maybe they're at the church, that's just a job, you know, for them. But that's not really about Jesus. It's not really about serving him. It's not about knowing him and truly making him known, living a life for him. It's just for the benefit of, you know, hey, it's easy place to, you know, pick up a paycheck, so to speak. Or, was it the false believers who he understood were just turning liberty into license? You know, he saw that all around him. And they were just using, you know, grace, you could say, as an opportunity to sin. All these things. Because he saw the past, he saw the present, he saw the future. But you can think about that he's tying it to the future because of what verse 19 says. See, because everybody can speculate. Well, I think he's talking about the past. But... So you have to understand something. There's a consistency all through Scripture. Is what should be pulling our lives isn't your past, but you look at most people today. Most people that you probably come in contact with are victims of their past. You might be here today. You're a victim of your past. It's not God's plan for you. He doesn't even want you to be a victim of your current circumstances. Jesus came to set us free, right? Jesus said the truth you'll know and the truth will what? It will set you free. You can be forgiven, not of just your past sin, your present sin, but your future sin as well. And that's not, you know, 
something that we go, oh, we celebrate that so that we can continue in sin. You go, no, so that we wouldn't sin, that you're not bound. That doesn't have a hold on you. Though. That, those shackles have been broken so that we can serve God in sincerity. We can serve him in truth. We can serve him in love. But how we know that this is the future, because look what it says in verse 19. It says, who's what? It didn't say who's beginning. It says, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. It was F.B. Meyer, his commentary. He described these men with tremendous insight. He says this, there is no chapel in their life. It's all kitchen. There's no chapel in their life. There's no seeking God. It's all kitchen. It's all about consumption. It's not about offering. That's what he's declaring. See, church, worship, it's not what you get. It's what you give. And really, you look at this, you know, false teaching, you know, it marks the the health and the wealth and the prosperity doctrine because what does it do? It makes it all about here. It makes it all about now. It makes it all about me. It makes it all about you. Where worship of the true and the living God makes everything about here and now, about what? About him, for his good, for his glory, for his purposes, his plans, all that he has for us. And so Paul goes on in verse 20. He then says, for our citizenship is in heaven. He says, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, that word citizenship there, it, it actually means conversation. It's kind of an interesting word when you think of conversation. It says, for our conversation is in heaven. That, that's how I want you to think about this. It's such a fitting word. Our conversation is in heaven. What does that mean? That's what we're talking about. That, that's what's on our lips. That's what's in our heart. That's what's in our thought process. It's in, you know, our decision-making, you know. It's not just our citizenship, you know, is in heaven. So what does it mean by that? What is Paul saying? You know, our identification is revealed, what? In their speech. You ever met somebody from the South? They come to California. You know right away. You know, they go, y'all, is there anybody from the South here? Can you do your Southern accent for us? Anybody? Is there any Southern, Southern people here that we haven't domesticated in California? I always love it, though, when you have people that have accents, right, that come and you talk to them. And as soon as they speak, what? You can identify where they're from. Should that be true of a Christian? Let me just ask you that. Should a Christian be known by their speech? Yeah. Why? How, what, what, do we, what marks us? We are Christians, right? What do we say? What, what do Christians say that should just be kind of commonplace for us? God bless. That's a good one. Keep going. You're scaring me. Amen. Oh, there you go. Amen. Don't you love that when somebody, I mean, when believers do that? You know, Jack Hayford told a story one time he was in a restaurant and uh, he said that there was somebody on a table next to him and they were using the Lord's name in vain. And he said he was getting mad. He said, the hair was standing up on my neck. He said, I wanted to get up. And he said, you know, I mean, was, and you got to picture Pastor Jack. He's not, you know, like this bulky guy. He's like, you know, them are fighting words. You know, it's like they're talking about my Jesus, you know. It's like somebody talking about my grandkids, right? You go, <laughs> and he said, but he thought, what do we do? So he told his wife, he said, you know, every time they say something, I'm going to say something back. She goes, what? And the guy says, you know, something. And, and Jack goes, praise you, Jesus, like that. And the guy was like looking at him like, you're strange. And Jack goes, I was looking at him like he was strange. And he said, and it just was going back and forth. He goes, but every time, he goes, because he saw this spiritual battle, right? So every time they said something, he was going to say something. He goes, because those are our words. You know, he's going, as a believer, to be able to say the name of Jesus, to lift that up. It's a name that's what? What, is, what does the Bible say? It's a name that's what? Above all names, right? At the name of Jesus. And so you go, you can see, you know, the, the, the battle of hell that comes against it, when you see people just use it flippantly as a curse word, right? To do what? To try to draw it down. And yet, as, as believers, what happens in our lives? We just, we're dull to it. You go, no, it should, it should create an offense. Hey, but you know, how many of us are going to stand up? Hey, you know what? Don't find another word. Find something else, you know? What's your mom's name? Let's just say that. What? You go, yeah, you just, I mean, find something that's dear to you then. You go, because the name of Jesus is dear to me. 
And, I, and if it's not, then it doesn't really matter. But if it is, it should matter. But there are words that are part of that conversation. Our, our citizenship, like I said, our conversation is in heaven. That should, Jesus should be being brought into wherever ever we can do that. Wherever we can, we can bring it in. You know, in the coffee shop, I was telling some, you know, some of our, our staff, so one of the, the blessings of opening that, we didn't, we didn't just say, you, you have to go to a church. We just hired people. And I said, the goal here isn't to go, you know, after every sentence is go, amen, praise, you know, praise God. This, I go, let's, let's see, let's see if they can see there's something different by the way that we love them and care for them. Because the Bible says, by all this, you know, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples because you have love. Love one for another. Paul said, hey, it's not the words, right? He said, you can have all the right words. And he goes, and it's like a clanging cymbal. And it, it's so fun to, to love on these girls that are working there and take an interest in their life and to share life with them and to encourage them. And our philosophy in that is, you know, it's pay it forward. And, you know, I, the very first question I asked him, you know, when we interviewed him was, where do you see yourselves in five years? Because the future is what matters to me. Where do you see yourselves in five years from now? And then my second question was, you know, how can we help you get from there to there? From here where you're at today, because that's why we exist. We want to help you get from here to there. And, if, and, and I told him, I go, and if, and if working here doesn't help you get from here to there, then you know what? I want to encourage you. Don't work here. Go find something else because it's not about us. It's about you. But that's God's plan. That's his purpose in all of our lives. You know, and so I look at this and, you know, here's Paul going for our citizenship is in heaven. It's where do you, you know, where are you starting from? You know, you're building backwards. You start with the end in mind. It's like building a house. You got to have a blueprint, right? Aim at nothing. You'll hit it every time. But if you got a blueprint and we have a blueprint in God's word and he's, and he's telling us, he says, for which we also then eagerly wait for the savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You think about, you know, what is the apostle Paul reminding us of something that Jesus said himself, you know, in Matthew chapter 12, verses 34 and 35, Jesus, he says, speaking to the Pharisees. He said, you brood of vipers. He said, you children, you children of the snake, right? Go all the way back to Genesis. How can you being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. What's he saying? What does Paul remind us of? Is this world your home? No. This world, I love that, this world has nothing for me. If it does, we're looking at the wrong things. Our focus is on the wrong things. Again, I love that expression that says they were so heavenly minded, you know, they were of earthly good. See, you've heard it as well as I have. They were so heavenly, you know, they were so earthly minded, you know, they're no heavenly good. Or some people would say they're so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. But the truth is, we will never be earthly good until we become heavenly minded. And that's what Paul was. He was heavenly minded. Deal Moody, you know, I, I think he said it best. He said, you know, again, aim at the earth and what? You get nothing. Aim at heaven and you get the earth thrown in. And that's what Paul did. And my prayer for me and for you, that's what we're doing. You know, the best way, the best way, church, for us, you know, to make your choices. You know, you think about this. The best way to make your choice today is in light of tomorrow. The best choices you'll make today are the ones that you make in light of tomorrow. Pastor friend of mine, he puts it like this. He says, you know, the decisions you make today will determine the stories you'll tell tomorrow. And it's true. Goes back to Galatians 6, again, the law of reaping and sowing there. You know, living in light of heaven, it definitely removes the bondage of this world. 
from our lives in, in such a way that, you know, again, we're, we're not being shackled by the things that, that are trying to, you know, as the writer of Hebrews says, lay aside the weight and the sin that so what? Easily entangles us. I mean, you know, we hear every day that, you know, we're, we're receiving thousands and thousands of different advertisements. If you go on social media at all for any length of time, you're being bombarded with ads. If you go on, um, you know, your internet browser and you type in a word, what pops up on the page? They're trying to say, is anybody like me that you have a hard time finding the X to click on to get rid of that ad? And you're just getting mad at it because they move it around on there. And it's like, ah, it's like, I don't want the. And then if you don't want ads, what do you have to do? You have to pay them. They just want your money. You want to use the browser free? Okay, then you get the ads. You don't want the ads, then you pay for it. Either way, they're after your money. And yet, here's Paul going, you want to make good decisions about your life? You don't want to be in bondage to this world? Make your decisions in light of eternity. And think about that. You go, if you were going to meet Jesus today, would you buy that thing? Would you do that? You know, would you, you know, and you go, and that, that can be taken to the fullest extent. And you go, but... You know, I just talked to a brother, you know, here in the church. His dad just passed away the other day, just totally unexpectedly. Happens all the time. Happens every single day. You know, the key is, are we ready? Are we ready? So what are the benefits as we close? What are the benefits here real quick of, of being heavenly minded? Real simple. Number one, it helps keep us prepared to meet Jesus face to face. Because guess what? We're going to. You know, Matthew 24, 42 says, Watch, therefore, you do not know the hour in which your Lord is coming. How about Matthew 24, 44? It says, Therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. John 14, 3. Jesus said, If I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, you may be also. How about in the book of Acts, when Jesus ascended back into heaven as he did? It says, men of Galilee, it says, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. He's coming back. What goes up, what? Must come down. And he's coming back. Are you ready? Are you ready to meet him? Matthew 6, 33, you know, tells us, you know, you think of the second thing. It helps us to, when you live in light of heaven, and you focus on heaven, you're prepared for Jesus' return. The things of this earth, what? They don't matter. They don't matter anymore. It's just, you go, you're saying it with your life. You go, this world has nothing for me. Matthew 6, 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. That's how you stay prepared to meet Jesus face to face. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, he says, and do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust can destroy and where thieves can break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and thieves do not break in and steal. For where, what? Your treasure is, your heart be also. Yeah. Raise your gaze. Raise your gaze. Looking up into heaven. Number three, you know, when you really put this into, into perspective, You know, what are the benefits, like I said, of being heavenly minded? It takes away your worry. I mean, that's the biggest one for a lot of us. Helps you not worry. Why? Remember that old saying that says, don't sweat the small stuff and just remember it's all small stuff. You know, that's what happens when you're prepared to meet Jesus. You start going, you know. He's in control. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 25, he says, therefore I say to you, don't worry about your life. What you will eat, what you'll drink, nor your body, or what you'll put on it is not life. More than food and the body more than clothing. And in verse 21, he says, chapter three, he says, who will transfer our lowly body that it may be conformed into his glorious body according to the working by which he's able to subdue all things to himself. Can you imagine what that's going to be like one day? You're going to get a glorified body. I mean, when Jesus was resurrected from the dead, think about this for a second. 
he didn't, they didn't just, he wasn't just raised from the dead and they saw his beaten body. Can you imagine that? What that would have been, that you'd been repulsed by that because scripture tells us in Isaiah 53 that he was beaten beyond recognition. It was by his stripes that we were healed. He was raised a, a resurrected. There was a, a glorified body. There was a body that was, was prepared for him that was unique, that was different, that the disciples saw. They could touch. They could recognize. But it was different. It was the same of the same kind, but it was different because when they were gathered in the upper room, what did Jesus do? It says he went right through the wall, right? And then they, what did they think? They thought it was a ghost, right? And, and what did Jesus say? He said, give me some fish, right? Then they show that cartoon. You ever seen those cartoons where the guy drops the fish in? They show the x-ray and it shows the, the fish down you know, in, the, in his stomach. They, I've seen cartoons like that. It was like Jesus was, was showing them, hey, I, I'm not a ghost because ghosts don't eat fish. But I'm eating fish with you. Same, same kind, but different. Resurrected body. And ultimately, we're going to have a glorified body. And Paul had joy because of that. He'd been beaten. I mean, he saw, he was a tent maker. Like I said, I've told you before, I think, you know, Paul, in <laughs> comparing his body to a tent, I mean, he was, he was one of those. He knew it, you know, he, he'd go like this and go, hmm. And then he'd lay, you know, down inside of his tent at night and what would happen? The wind would blow and he'd see that tent going like that. And he's making the connection. He's going, that looks just like my arm. And that looks like my my turkey gobbler below my neck, you know, whatever, whatever the things are. And yet he knew that a better day was coming. First Corinthians 15, 51 through 54, he says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed for this corruption must put on incorruption this mortal must put on immortality so when this corruption has put on incorruption and the mortal has put on immortality then shall it be brought to pass saying what is written death is swallowed up in victory there's a day coming when death is going to be destroyed completely today's not that day that day is still coming that's why paul would write in first corinthians 15 50 26 and 27, he says, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under his feet, it is evident that he who put all things under him is expect, accepted there. And so, again, those days are still coming. I love what John Corson would write with regard to this. He says, heaven will solve every problem, answer every question, and right every wrong. And the best news is still, we're going to be there. If you're in Christ Jesus. And that's why Paul then in, in chapter 4 verse 1. He says therefore my beloved. My long for brethren. My joy and my crown. So stand fast in the Lord. So stand fast in the Lord. When he says you know my joy and my crown. You think about that. What is he saying? Remember what he wasn't saying. You know in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 14. Remember he says I thank, thank God. I didn't baptize any one of you. You know. He says you know except for. Crispus and Gaius. And so on this side of it, in the book of Philippians, he's going, you know, as I think back over this church, he goes, you're my joy, you're my crown. Because what is it? what really matters? He goes, it's people. It's not stuff. It's people. You can't take stuff with you, but you can take people with you. Amen? And that's what he's looking back and he's, he's thinking about and he's thanking God. He said, I thank my God. First, first, this, third, excuse me, first Philippians chapter 1. Verse 3, he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. That's people, people stuff. Who wouldn't want to pastor a church like that? And so he tells them, stand fast in the Lord. And we close with this. I want to read this from the Life Application Bible because it defines what it means, stand fast in the Lord. It says, the way to stand fast and firm is to keep our eyes on Christ to remember that this world is not our home and to focus on the fact that Christ will bring everything under his control. Standing firm, therefore, then means steadfastly resisting the negative influences of temptation, false teaching, or persecution. And it requires perseverance when we are challenged or opposed. This is a great word. Stand fast. And that's my hope. For me, my hope for you, as Paul would write to the church there in Ephesus, 
Put on the full armor of God, church. We are in a battle, and it's a battle for our lives. And when you put on the full armor of God, he says, stand. And when you've done that, do what? Stand some more. Hold your ground. Don't give an inch. As the writer of Hebrews reminds us, fixing our eyes upon Jesus. Amen. Fix our eyes upon Jesus. Of all the things that you can do this week, you want to have a good week? Fix your eyes upon Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to study it, to read it together. And Lord, as we go from this place, um, Lord, I'm just reminded that, you know, the greatest message, you know, Billy Graham said, uh, as salvation messages would go out, he wasn't so much trying to reach the lost. He was trying to reach the reached. It was the church who needed it the most. There was those that, that maybe thought that they were Christians, but Lord, as Paul would even write here, they were, they were enemies of the cross. Again, it's not about coming to church. It's about coming to Christ. It's not about knowing the Bible. It's about knowing Jesus. And Lord, I pray for each and every one of us today that Lord, uh, like Paul, that the greatest joy of our life is knowing you. And Lord, if there's any amongst us today that have yet to receive you as Savior, and Lord, I pray that they wouldn't leave this place, but Lord, they would, they would come, they'd trade religion. Maybe they've said, you know, I've come to church my whole life, but today I'm coming to Jesus. I, I want salvation. I want the forgiveness of, of my sin. And I know that that comes through a personal relationship with Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And so, Lord, I come to you today and I ask you, Forgive me of my sin and to cleanse me of all unrighteousness and fill me with your Holy Spirit so that I can understand your word. And, and then, Lord, help me to be in your word every day and to seek you in prayer and study and fellowship and in service, Lord. May you use my life for your glory. May I tell people about you, but most of all, may my life shine for you. May people, as they come in contact with me, maybe I don't always know what to say, but Lord, I know what to do. And that's to love people in your name until the world knows about you. God, use us, Lord. Help us this week, Lord. Fix our eyes upon you as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, church, we'll invite you.